Morning, everybody. Still a little early. This will make it work. Okay. Well, my name is Clive D'Souza, and I'm going to spend some time talking to you about Enterprise Cloud Journey using Service Catalog. And in a few more minutes, I'll be joined on stage by executive team from GoDaddy. What I want to set the stage is we'll spend a little amount of time talking about what Service Catalog is. This is not a deep dive on Service Catalog. The intent here is just to kind of give you an oversight of what the service can do. And then we'll have the actual technical deployment coming in and being talked to by Demetrius and his team. Um, from an agenda perspective, I can't see the screen moving. It's still loading. OK, there we go. Um, so what I want to spend some time at a very high level is define service catalog. We have seen that the cloud transformation or the digital transformation has taken off. And the last couple of years, it's moved very, very rapidly. At the same time, we also have seen this whole notion of DevOps and enterprise cloud centers of excellence dealing with the notion of how to control unconstrained deployments into the cloud, right? Starting from the developers wanting to move really fast and the DevOps team and the cloud center of excellence wanting to put guardrails and policies and mechanisms around, like, hey, how do you prevent a particular deployment to not happen? For instance, if your workload is healthcare compliant, or if you are in the financial industry, you do not want to allow every developer to just go pick a particular artifact and deploy it without having the policy guardrails around that. And so Service Catalog essentially allows you to do that. It sets you full control, or we say the blast radius control. And the way we do that, essentially, is we do through self-service. But to set the stage, this is where we are today if you look at the current state. <clears throat> so think of a scenario where you have a developer or uh, he or she wants to have a VM instance. They log on to the AWS portal, and out there, in addition to seeing service catalog, they'll see hundreds of other services. So the developer has to make the decision what particular instance type to instantiate. So there's a guessing game involved. They do not know what policies, both operational and security, they have to implement. So that's on the developer. And thirdly, they don't know what particular instance type they want to do. So some of the challenges in this unconstrained, unborn environment tends to be that, hey, you have a shot that this particular deployment can go out of your security compliance. You can end up with the wrong type of instance being deployed. And you might be out of all your compliance regulatory requirements. Something as simple as you go and pick up a particular instance of a third-party software from Marketplace, and it's going and storing your data in a region where you don't want it to. But the developer doesn't know that. How do you control that? So the way we control that today is using self-service, but with pre-configured compliance. So one of the ways we have enabled this particular aspect through AWS is through the user service catalog. And the way we do that is you take the cloud formation, and in the cloud formation, using service catalog, you can put constraints. And these constraints can be something as simple as this particular user group is not allowed to launch a particular artifact or you can put threshold constraints. Like you have an instantiation of a particular application portfolio, and it's approaching an X amount of dollars in EC2, or you are not allowed to have more than Y instances of a particular application running. So think of in a BYOL instance, you have, you know, your company has licensed, I would say, 50 instances of a particular software. You are approaching 48. You want to instantiate a workflow saying that, hey, you're not allowed to go launch that. So this is what Service Catalog enables you to do that. On top of that, the whole deployment of Service Catalog is built on top of IAM. So by default, the users and the access rights are defined for them. So that's what Service Catalog gives. So now if you look at the new state of self-service, now when a user logs into the console, he or she gets access to only what the Service Catalog administrator or the Cloud Center of Excellence have actually defined as a curated set of assets. And this is where your deployment at mass or the, the scale-out goes in, right? You can have only those artifacts, specific versioning, specific instance type. So in this particular case, the developer really needed a VM with a T3 instance, not a C5 instance large, right? So you can set those guardrails for a developer in there. Let's see how it really works in the actual deployment scenario. Within Service Catalog, if you look at it, there are two personas. 
The persona above the dashed line is, is the administrator. And this administrator works in conjunction with what we have seen as a, the central IT team or the cloud center of excellence team, if you will, and they define what goes into a product. And a product can be something as simple as a cloud formation script or something complex, right, and complete application portfolio. This could be your own BI layer, starting with your own database. You have your own operating system. And by in the back end, you might have your particular specific instance type, an EC2, an S3, Aurora, whatever you want, right? And it can be as complex as that. And around this entire application stack, you can define the parameters from a constraints type. You can tag your particular assets which get deployed. And tagging can be something as simple as your cost center. So if you are running budgeting on a particular project, or if you're, if you're wanting to restrict a particular asset being deployed into a region you don't want it, you can set those tags. And then you can write a custom Lambda resource function, which will prevent the deployment of that asset. And then when we have multiple products and you put them in a folder, if you will, in the cloud, we have a new construct called portfolio. And then you can define constraints both at a product level or at a portfolio level. And the beauty of doing this at an administrative level or a cloud center of excellence level is that you can then have a repeatability of patterns. So every time a developer is logging in to set up a new environment for a tear up, tear down, or you want to you know, set a new version of a particular application portfolio across your entire organization, you can go and do it at a centralized location from a cloud center of excellence. So think of this as your hub and all your other organizations, all your teams who can be spread all over the world or wherever you want as your spokes and you can, you can push it out. So you can ensure your compliance, your guardrails for any particular security and operationals are managed at that level. And then from the user side, when they log in, they get to see what products they are allowed to for a project or on a user base, depending upon how the Cloud Center of Excellence is concerned. And then they get to actually go launch it. Now, from what we are seeing as an operating model, it's evolving. And the evolution is happening more where the centralized IT is moving more and more towards an actual Cloud Center of Excellence. And the, and the inputs as to what constitutes as a solutions factory, which ends up becoming a repeatable pattern which they deploy and they harden over time, essentially comes in from three other personas. You know, it could be somebody from business analysts, it could be an actual product or solutions architect, and eventually it comes up and then gets wrapped around with all the organization policies which are defined by the security experts within the organization. And then you express that as either as a, as a JSON or a YAML or a Terraform, so Service Catalog supports Terraform, so we actually have that support built in now, and eventually you'll expose that in a completely automated manner. So you move essentially, if you look at it, from being a completely manual, completely you know, one workload at a time instantiation to something which is fully automated. And then over a period of time, you can harden your solution. And you have the solution factory, which then the other teams contribute to. And then you can have a level of versioning control built into it, as opposed to doing it every single time on a cloud formation. So here's where uh, some of the other uh, cloud services request features come in. It, within an organization, we see some instances, you know, you have an existing ITSM, something like a ServiceNow or a BMC or a Sherval. So Service Catalog has built-in connectors with all three of them. And the advantage of that is if you have, for instance, a ServiceNow implementation, and you want to go and procure or you want to request an AWS artifact, or your cloud center of excellence can say, hey, I can use whatever I have inside my IT. It could be a LAMP stack. It could be a homegrown application stack. Then you can vend it through the ServiceNow portal. And the value of that is using the existing workflow of ServiceNow or a BMC or a Sherville, the users can then go down the path of going to the cloud. So the whole concept of guessing game is taken away from them. You know, even though they are going to the cloud, they still have the same UX in front. The look and feel is similar. The workflow is similar. Now, in, in addition to doing your on-prem or a hybrid model, you can now deploy to AWS using these ITSM vendors. At the same time, folks who do not have a actual um, ITSM solution, the service catalog console in and itself can be vendored and changed. We allow that to be customized. You can put your own logo on it, your own color on it. So when the user log in, it literally shows up as their own company's um, uh, dashboard, if you will. 
So we're also seeing a significant flexibility in the business models. Um, most of the larger organizations, think of the large organizations which are moving to the cloud, in addition to having a cloud center of excellence, they have also fairly huge dependency on an IT service provider or a managed service provider. And what we are seeing in other business model very rapidly evolved in the cloud center of excellence is that the cloud center of excellence or the architects define what the MSPs or the consulting partners get access to. And the way they're doing it essentially is they put the constraints, as I talked about in the earlier slide, and then the MSP can go and work using through the service catalog console only on those application-specific tasks where the customer or the cloud center of excellence opens them up to. So at this point in time, it also brings in a level of security for the actual customer because you can log down at any given point what your MSP or your consulting partner has access to. And as and when the project is over or they want to change the relationship, it's just a flip of a button in the back end, and you can control all your assets. So you know where your deployments are happening. At the same time, you know what specific aspects of your software stack are procured from the you know, uh, marketplace or homegrown. So it kind of removes the actual guessing game as to which particular software version was deployed by my MSP. And then the actual indemnification comes back to you. You control that. So this is at a very high level you know, some of the business models which are happening with Service Catalog. So what I want to do now is I want to invite on stage Dimitris Combs, uh, Vice President of Engineering from the Office of CTO for GoDaddy, and he's going to walk us through how the deployment journey was. Dimitris? Hi, my name is Demetrius Combs. Uh, I currently serve as the VP of Engineering for GoDaddy and our CTO organization. What that really means today is I'm the one throat to choke if we screw up on our move to AWS. Now, you may ask, how do you get such a illustrious position as this? About 15 months ago, our C CEO at the time, uh, Blake Irving, comes to me, sits down next to me, and says, I need you to do me a favor. And like any good soldier, when your CEO asks you a question, you say yes. Oh, if I only knew then what I know now, I may have had a different answer. However, my hope through this conversation is in a neck uh, that though we're about 25% of the way through this move, uh, that you get a sense for the approach that GoDaddy took, the journey that we're on, and uh, the metrics that we've, created, that we've gathered thus far. <clears throat> so first of all, who's GoDaddy? GoDaddy currently is about somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 engineers. We have 77 million domains under management, 18 million customers worldwide, and our DNS servers run a significant portion of the internet at about 300,000 queries a second. So we're not, a, we're not an ultra-large company. We're not as large as AWS, say, but we also are not small either. We have roughly about 130 scrum teams, so this talk is really about the journey that we're going to take each one of those scrum teams on to get them safely and securely to, the, to AWS. So one of my favorite quotes, the, what I can say thus far, even though, like I said, we're only about 25% away through the journey, is it takes incredibly talented and, and intelligent people to have the will to make the hard and right decision every single time early in the process. In the face of a whole bunch of people that all believe they know AWS, that all want to give you advice, that all want to uh, help in any way possible, which is all good. Um, but this quote, I think, embodies our, our journey so far. So what was the task that Blake Irvine actually asked me to do? It's this simple. Move us to AWS, although I modified this at the, mo at the time. At the time, we didn't know we were going to AWS. It was just a public cloud. <clears throat> um, while not screwing anything up. So what does not screwing anything up means? It means don't screw up the budgets, because you know we like our EBITDA where it's at. Um, don't get us hacked, especially since we're moving from these centralized services that have security experts in them to development teams that are controlling their own destiny and with a flick of a button can change their own routing instead of opening up tickets to get firewalls opened and that sort of thing where security professionals can look over it and make sure that we're headed in the right direction. So we have our task. We have our high-level mission statement. 
What were our goals in this? Why were we even moving to the public cloud? Well, one was to increase speed of delivery for our, for our development teams. How do you do that? You get everything out of their way as you possibly can. Second, we wanted to increase performance for an application. So no matter how much hardware GoDaddy buys, and we've purchased quite a bit, we will pale in comparison to any of the three public cloud vendors, especially AWS. We just simply can't build enough data centers across the planet to get the bits closest to, close enough to all our customers. And then third, we need to increase our reliability and availability. This really comes down to not necessarily that our software was written poorly, because it is not. However, when you only deploy to a single data center, and something goes wrong with the networking to that data center or a backhoe goes over your CO or that sort of thing, services will go out. So part of the journey is to re-architect our systems to be cloud native so that we can deploy to multiple regions and then be able to be able to do a hot hot at all times. So one of the things, if anybody starts this journey, I would suggest to them is build your migration pillars. So we set up our, we have our task, we set our goals in order, now, what are our pillars? In order of priority, what are the things that we're going to take every question that we're going to have over this journey and hold it up against? First one was security. Cannot compromise our security. Second, application architecture. I'm gonna go back to security for a second. The difference here is that as we move out to AWS or the public cloud at the time, how do you take the knowledge of our security group and instill that in development our development teams so that they can secure their own software. Because now, with a CI-CD process and a change to a CloudFormation template, they could open up port 22 to the world and all of a sudden, 20 seconds later, start getting brute forced and not even know it. How do we prevent those sort of things? How do we make sure that teams understand the, the, that they went from a zone of trust type network that we had in our data centers to a zero trust network that we have in any public cloud vendor? Application architecture. How do we make sure GoDaddy's a 20-year-old-plus-year company that has architectures dating back that long? How are we going to move the company to the public cloud, and what are our architectures that we want to particularly embrace? Third, operational readiness. How do we keep our high standards of availability and reliability as we move out to the public cloud? Again, we have an army of, S uh, of SREs at the company that do a lot of work to keep our software up and running for us and make sure things are automated if something does go wrong. Now that we're moving that to the development teams to handle, because again, they can now automate their infrastructure build, not just their software build. How do we make sure that that uh, awareness about operational readiness and all the metrics that come out of an SRE team get instilled into our development teams? Budget, when you own your own data centers and you buy uh, hardware, the development teams or the product teams can just say, hey, this is how many customers we think are gonna get on it and we buy the hardware. Optimizing utilization is really secondary to that. So if you bought enough hardware and you, have, you bought a little bit too much but you're still meeting your profit margins, there wasn't a lot of conversation around that. As you move out to any public cloud vendor and you start getting utility build, that becomes a problem. This becomes something that we now need to keep an eye on. And then lastly, uh, compliance and privacy. I'm sure everybody's in here had their, have their stories about GDPR. Um, we need to keep all the things that we built up on-premise on and move those out to the public cloud, again, in a zero-trust network and make sure that we don't compromise anything there. So you're gonna see this slide a few times through my, through my conversation. This is an overview starting in January of this year, going out till April of next year of our mapped out of our journey thus far and what we believe our journey is going to be going forward. So in the pregame stage, it's what I call January until March 28th, we didn't know who the public cloud vendor was going to be. Um, so we could only define the what's because we couldn't do anything about the hows because we didn't know who we were going to work on yet. So we needed to find the process at how we were gonna set engineering standards at the company. At GoDaddy, one of the things I love most about GoDaddy is it's a very collaborative atmosphere. We have a lot of thought leaders gathered together to make decisions together. There isn't this on high architecture committee that makes the decision and it gets just communicated out to everybody. It's very collaborative. However, 
when you're trying to set company-wide standards for, in the context of we're now moving to the public cloud and here's your standards, here's what everybody has to meet, how do you do that and still do that collaboratively? So the first thing we had to do is come up with a process for that. We called that our initiative process. Essentially what we did is gather five thought leaders, five to eight thought leaders on a particular subject of the company, define the problem, make sure they were aligned on the problem, define what the exit criteria for that problem was, and set a time frame. And then set the team off to accomplish those goals. We then turned around and put them on our uh, five pillars and said, what are the things that every team going out and releasing a GoDaddy product must do for these five areas. We then also developed a communication plan and an overall migration plan. That's what, that was the uh, uh, timeline that I showed you earlier. Full transparency, the dates might have shifted a little bit over the time of development, but you know we'll keep that quiet. Um, and uh, we need to de develop an onboarding process. How are we going to actually engage every team and get them onboarded? Especially because we had no idea where to start. That got us to phase zero. Phase zero started on March 28th of this year. Why? Because on March 28th of this year, we announced that we have partnered with AWS, and that was going to be our cloud vendor, and that we would be moving all our services to AWS. So now that we had where we were going, we can now start to define the how we were going to go about doing it. Now we could actually go through and define what our onboarding process was going to look like. So for every team that we had targeted that we believe was going to go in, the, in this first few teams, and at the time we thought we were going to take six until the end of the year. We're just going to onboard six teams and learn from those six teams. Um, so we set up a prototyping stage where they could go off and start the prototype. This was the same time that my teams were going off trying to figure out how we were actually going to onboard them. But this allowed the teams to start learning about the AWS services and the best way to build and deploy to it. We then knew that we needed a cloud readiness review or some sort of review to say, hey, all those must-dos and should-dos that we defined in the what phase in the pregame, how are we going to make sure that the team actually reaches those before they take production traffic? And then also we needed to set the expectation with every team going out that once you started taking live traffic, there would be audits. We will set up an auditing framework that will make sure that you're at least following GoDaddy standards and that... Um, as you, as you deploy your software, you don't stray from something that the company's already set up that we must do. Um, and then a monthly budget review and a monthly operational review. Second thing we did was set up an account structure. The key thing about this account structure is you'll note that we actually separate our environments by accounts. This complicated the budgeting process for us a bit because we create an organization at the roof, leaf, leaf level. So if you look at it as we start with a top level account of PCI or non-PCI, and then we have a legal entity, GoDaddy US, GoDaddy EMEA, that sort of thing, GoDaddy Germany. And then we have a, a business unit. So maybe that's our <coughs> domains business unit. And then we have the team that we're actually getting the budget for. Underneath that team, we'll create six accounts. We use the AWS organizations API to do this. However, budgeting doesn't happen at the organization level, budgeting happens at the account level. So it complicated our budgeting process a bit because now we needed to say, all right, you got signed off on for $8,000 a month, but now we have to like, if we want to set up alerts, we have to like, as, my one, as one of my employees call it, peanut butter the, the, the money across all the accounts, and hopefully we guessed right at what ratio we're going to use across those accounts. Um, However, we did this because if you remember our pillars, security was the first pillar. And the most secure way of doing this is to set up them up in it as individual accounts. So we set up our environments by individual accounts. We did try, before we even knew about uh, <clears throat> uh, service catalog, to how are we gonna build the landing zone? Where is the team actually gonna reside? So, not too surprisingly, we built a bunch of scripts that call it AWS APIs that would create the environment for the teams as we onboarded them. It worked. We could create you a VPC. We could create you um, EKS or any of the services that you wanted to use. What we couldn't do, and we tried this many different ways by you know, copying S3 buckets over that had all the code and the rule set in it and then 
setting up AWS config to check for certain rule breakages and that sort of thing. Tried a couple of different iterations of this. But what it ultimately boiled down to is, unless AWS provides you the, a service to control their services, we look like a customer. My cloud readiness team, my cloud uh, excellence team looks like any one of our other teams to AWS. There's nothing special about that group, right? Other than they're the one creating the account. So by using Service Catalog, we were able to enforce where we needed to and suggest, where we, uh, suggest everywhere else. By enforce, we just don't put a service in the Service Catalog, therefore the team can't create it. By taking all the experience that my cloud rating and my cloud excellence team has built up, we can will that in defaults to services that teams can then instance on top, on top of that. So we can create a product, let's just say it's an EC2 instance with specific GoDaddy parameters, and set those up as defaults. Now, there's very little use for teams at most teams that go to use the FPA, FPGA instances. So we can prevent those from being created while we suggest better parameters or good parameters for GoDaddy to create other EC2 instances. This is one of the kind of the foundation that we ended up building off of. So we had our task, we had our goals, we have our pillars, we have a plan. Now we're in phase one, and now we're actually gonna try to put that plan to use and see if, it, see if, it, see if our hypothesis pan out. We ended up, we start, planned on onboarding five teams initially. We ended up onboarding eight. From, January, or from July 9th until roughly September 10th of this year. We then stopped and did a retro. So what did we learn through that? We weren't using Service Catalog enough. That's the first thing we learned. We were really using it at the time to uh, will best practices into parameters for AWS services rather than bundling a series of AWS services together and turning that into a GoDaddy product. I'll give an example. We have, uh, we have a standard logging that we do. It's a Kinesis stream, an Elk stack, and an APM node. Well, we bundle that up as a GoDaddy logging. Now we can just instance that once, and people don't have to understand, like, they don't have to create the Kinesis stream and then sync that Kinesis, send that Kinesis stream to Firehose and sync that Firehose into Elk so that they can see it and then have a standard dashboard. We can build all that into one product that they could just instance for everybody. Early in the process, we made a decision uh, not to do VPC peering. Again, this was a security-based decision. We didn't want one compromise in one area to allow an evildoer to horizontally move between all our environments. Um, this turned out to be the right call. However, um, it, again, because we didn't embrace service catalog enough, we didn't have an API gateway product set up for Teams. So, um, that's one thing that we worked on for phase two, which I'll go into a little bit later. Um, we didn't have a support model. And oddly, when you onboard teams, you onboard the first team, that takes a bunch of work. You go move on to the second team, now onboard the second team, and the first team still has questions. And they're asking questions of the team. Then you onboard the third team, and then the first two, the first two teams have questions. And the third team, and on and on it goes. This made my onboarding team extremely tired. I do want to take a moment and say that that team has done amazing things. I basically have worked with this team now for a little less than a year, and they went from not knowing the public cloud vendor to knowing the public cloud vendor on March 28th to figuring out the best way to onboard teams to then onboarding them, and by the end of this year, we have onboarded 20 teams rather than six mostly due to the excellent work of this team and the leader of that team will be coming out in a minute to take you through what the experience currently looks like. So we finished phase one. We took a month off to try to you know, build the pieces that we felt like we were missing and needed to do before we moved into phase two. Phase two started about the middle of October. And the goal here was, all right, we learned from the first one. What is it that we have to learn during the phase two so that during phase three, we can start building a self-onboarding portal so that we don't have to do this single-threaded, meet with the team, look over what you need, then make sure the service catalog has what you need, then create your accounts, grant the service catalog to those accounts, and then sit with your team to make sure they can deploy the first time. We have 130 Scrum teams, that's not gonna scale. So 
the goal of phase two here is to go through and go, all right, could we start taking our hands off of this? Like, is the onboarding process just getting easier so that in phase three, we can shrink the number of teams that we onboard and focus on building this self-onboarding portal? One of the things we did to help the team and lower the administration overhead of this little bit is we removed the first step. We also felt that the teams have gotten far enough along now that um, we didn't need the prototyping stage anymore. The teams could onboard immediately. I do want to point out that we were still having the cloud readiness review, even if the team only plans on going into development. A little bit of heavy handed because that means they have, to, they have to hit all the check boxes for something that's going to production, even though they're only going to development. It's just where the stage we're at in, in, in the process at the moment. So now I do want to bring out Getin Patel. He's, one of, he's a senior manager that uh, runs the onboarding team, and he's going to take you through what the experience is like for our development teams today. Getin? Good job, man. Good job. Thanks, Demetrius. Hey, everybody. Morning. I'm uh, Kevin Patel, Senior Manager of Engineering at GoDaddy, working in our CTO division along with Demetrius, building out our cloud excellence team. And so the experience, um, like you've heard Demetrius say, we're about 200 days into our journey of actually getting the cloud uh, excellence team built out and 100 days into our actual um, onboarding experience. And so the experience that we have, um, may not quite add up to the experience you may have had last night here in Vegas, but nonetheless, we think it's pretty cool as well. So when we first started this journey, we took a look at, you know, what will it take to get teams into the cloud? What do we have to go through? What are the stages? What, everything's brand new for us. So how do we get through this process? And so we went through a, different, uh, a set of different cycles. So we identified a gathering stage where we'd have to go out and figure out what exactly teams would need We'd go into taking that data and then populating it out into a landing zone that we would have to create for this team, which would get provisioned, and then enable them into the cloud as well. So the first stage, the gathering stage, a lot of manual process, a lot of reaching out to networking or to finance or to security and to the teams itself and identifying what it was that they needed. What components did they have to have within their landing zone to enable them quickly to get up and running to deploy their app in their stack? But then also making sure that we're putting in best practices and governance around making sure that the accounts were secure. So we took that data and then we populated it into something that we call Atom data, AWS team onboarding metadata. And essentially it just dwindles down to a simple JSON document that contains all the different pieces of information that we gathered in the gather phase. So as you can see, everything from finance information to security information, the networking details, the cedar ranges, the accounts that they need, specifics into each account as well. So um, things with uh, their subnet models and what their VPC details had to look like and all that captured into this single JSON document. And so we had the details on the account itself, and then we kind of needed to also enable them with the service catalog. And so if you recall this image that you saw before, I'll draw your attention to kind of like the top middle section where you kind of see the S3 and the mapping magic that's happening there. So the good thing with service catalog is that, of course, it gives you that governance. It gives you the ability to enable teams quickly to define products for them and really to streamline their experience so that they can launch and provision products quickly. But in order to put that governance in place and try to make that a custom experience for teams as well, we defined a mapping layer within the pipeline. And so the mapping layer, what it does is we have separate product buckets and we have separate portfolio buckets. And we have some mapping magic behind the scenes that will essentially take a definition for each team and then define what portfolio each team will get based off of the products that we have available and their profile uh, based off of the atom information that we defined for them. So we have the account landing zone information. We have the service catalog definition defined for the teams. We know what portfolio they're getting. And so we start turning the wheels. We move into the next stage of getting the landing zones built out. And so before we started on this journey, AWS didn't release that landing zone concept that you may have heard of. Um, it was still kind of in beta at the point. And so we took it on to build our own version of the landing zone. And so. At the core of it, as you would imagine, there's a create account flow 
that will go in and have different handlers to build out the different components that we talked about that identified within the Atom data the different structures that would be needed for each landing zone. So everything from building out to standard VPC structure, we do have a set of um, you know, a few VPC configurations that we enable with Teams. So there's a predefined, ready to go, and so the wheels will start building out the VPC model for the team. It'll start building out all the different IAM roles that we control as well. Everything within our uh, infrastructure is backed by AD groups that we manage. And so we um, deploy out the IAM structure. We build out uh, logging flows that you heard Demetrius talk about as well. And then, of course, we uh, uh, publish out the, the service catalog as well. And so that's kind of what goes into building out that entire landing zone experience for teams. Um, and then at the end of that, they're essentially given this. In the center of it is what teams really need to focus on. That's where they deploy their applications. That's where they manage their stack. And that's where they really just need to focus on. Like, our intent with using the service catalog and provisioning these accounts up front for teams was we wanted to take out all of the different um, complexities with having to deal with the out, outer lying infrastructure for what you would need in an account. So these baseline uh, pipelines, uh, as we call it, uh, we've got a logging pipeline that has a standard Kinesis flow. So streams going out to Firehose, going out to a data sync, uh, such as Elasticsearch. And on the other side, we've also got some monitoring uh, pipelines built out for them as well. So something from uh, a billing perspective where we take what their known approved financial budget is for each month, and we define uh, thresholds for them with using CloudWatch, and then um, push that data out through SNS as they reach critical thresholds as they get closer and closer to their approved budget. From the monitoring perspective, um, as you would imagine, CloudWatch integration there as well, going out to SNS and then um, pumping that data back into a couple of monitoring tools that we use as well. Um, some of those you're probably familiar with, Moog, ServiceNow, and Slack. So we took this approach of essentially, here's your landing zone, focus on building your kick-ass app, and let us just build out the rest of it for you so that you don't have to worry about it, and you're up and running, and you're into the cloud as quick as you can. So teams now have their landing zone. They're in the account. They're up and running. We've provisioned the service catalog that has best practices and architectures built into the products that we've defined. And they're given the service catalog definitions that you can see here. This is a sample of what a team may or may not see as they log into the account with defined portfolios. And within each portfolio, you can see that all the standard AWS products are already there available for them. But the best part is they're all defined. They're all catered. They're all uh, blessed off on from a security and infrastructure standpoint with what should go into them what we're allowing teams to do, and how we're putting governance around how they actually deploy and use their AWS infrastructure. So we're 200 days into the start of the experience, 100 days of actually using this experience and enabling teams. Um, as Demetrius mentioned, we're honing in on about 20 teams uh, by the end of the year. Our original target was six. So using this service catalog approach, really did get us bootstrapped up and running quickly so that we could get teams into the cloud and they could really just start running with it at that point. So that's not where we stop. We've got our sights set on what V2 of this experience looks like, uh, taking our learnings from what we've gathered with uh, our initial onboardings. And for that, I'll pass it back to Demetrius to kind of show you what the next experience looks like. All right, so I'm gonna go through what the next experiences look like or as we head into phase three. So into phase three, we're gonna to continue to onboard, but we are gonna shrink the number of teams that we're onboarding. This time, really, I promise, getting I won't promise more than, I'm, than you guys ask for this time. Um, the idea is, is that we continue to onboard teams, learning the last bits of things, but really to, to focus on what does this process look like as we step away and don't make it so manual and that now it's a website the teams go to to onboard. One of the first things that we know we're gonna have to do is iterate our onboarding process and we're gonna have to recommunicate this back out. One of the things that we've learned through this process is if we want teams to explore and iterate on their own and have that, and that speed of delivery, that first bullet point that we had, one of our first goals is, you know, teams need to be able to go off and experiment fail fast, fail cheap, and then uh, be able to try again, be able to develop products on their own, 
that sort of thing. So what we really need to do is, since finance is a part of everything, we need to really come up with different budget types. So an experimental budget, let's say that that one's good for, these are, I'm just throwing out numbers, say it's good for 60 to 90 days and it has a relatively low budget cap. If you don't go to get it re-upped, those accounts get tombstoned and don't get used again. If you then get approved for a development budget and you're developing a product that you ultimately intend to ship, maybe that's good for six months and a bit, bit, bit larger of a budget. Um, and then ultimately a production budget that holds ongoing development and production as well. So if we then look back at, okay, well, how would that change our process? Well, we really want teams to explore and develop without putting, without going through the administrative overhead of our cloud readiness review. It's not that bad, it's about 90 minutes, but it's a lot of people in a room to kind of go over and make sure the team is actually ready. Uh, some teams, some companies call this a green light process, the green light to go live. Um, so if we'd say a team actually has a development budget, they go to finance, they acquire the development budget. They then use the portal, and this will give them three of the six accounts that we talked about. A dev private account, which is really our replacement for the desktop in case uh, the teams just want to develop in AWS. A dev and a test environment. So there is no way for them to take production traffic at that point. Um, they develop their application. Um, their application is ready to go to production. They believe it's ready. They go and acquire the production budget, and then they schedule our cloud, cloud, uh, cloud readiness review. Now we go through and make sure the budget approval's right. We do the architecture review. Of course, we're converse, having conversations with them beforehand, doing a compliance review, the operational review, and then we let them deploy to production, and then we do a pen and vulnerability test that we do for all our products first time out. If they pass that, then they go to live operations, and it's the same, same rules that we've had before. You see the subtle shift here that we're moving the, the governance out farther and farther so the teams only bump up against it when we absolutely have to when we start taking production traffic and dealing with real customer data. So what does this onboarding process look like? Here's our vision of it, or I'm gonna take you through what I believe our vision's gonna look like you know, four or five months from now. I'm sure it's not perfect, but it'll give you a sense of the, where we're headed. So, you come to the landing page and it asks you if you're ready to onboard. If you say you are, you get some steps of these are the things that we're gonna take you through like any good wizard. Um, you then come in and you provide us your budget ID. We then query our financial system and we pull back much of that Adam data that Getton talked about earlier. So we get your legal entity, we get the department you're a part of, that sort of thing, and pre-fill in that data for you. You don't even have to fill it in. We then move on to what is, the, what is the infrastructure that you need? And through the onboarding of the now almost 20 teams that will onboard, we have come up with a standard set of architectures that uh, teams are using over and over again. So we have a picture on the right-hand side of what that architecture looks like, a drop-down to switch between them or a carousel to click through them, ask you what AWS regions that you want to deploy to, how many availability zones within each region, and then whether or not you need to direct connect. For those of you who don't know what direct connect is, it's essentially the way to, for us to call back to our own data centers for services that have yet to move out to AWS. So in this case, we're gonna pick the, I do need the direct connect. I'm gonna use the four subnet model and two EKSs. So in every region, I'm gonna get two, EKS, two EKSs or Kubernetes. This way I can do red green deployments. I'm gonna get four subnets. One is a public subnet that we don't deploy anything into, but if you ever do need a jump box, that's where you go, that's where you go, that's where we'll spin up your instance in. A Kubernetes worker group that, ha that has access to the Direct Connect and one it doesn't, so that people only deploy services into the one that actually need to call back to our Direct Connect. Um, and then lastly, the, data, the one for the database. And then we specify how many uh, availability zones. One will not be an option for us. Um, and then uh, that you're using the direct connect. The last thing we, the last part of the information that we gather from every team is uh, what does your monitoring look like? Getting talked about our monitoring product that we have out there of, okay, all metrics get expressed to CloudWatch. CloudWatch, then you can set up triggers on CloudWatch. If it goes to alerted state, depending on if it's a critical or an informational type thing, what is your MoogSoft ID? That's the alerting software we have of choice. We'll then hit a URL, we'll then, that message will then get sent to an SQSQ, which will then trigger a Lambda job, which will send it to Moog to then 
kick cell phones if need be. And then we also take a Slack channel because Slack is our communication uh, platform of choice. And then, like any good editor, we'll give a place where, or any good wizard, sorry, uh, there's a place where you can review the outcome, review what you're going to do. Um, and if everything looks okay, you hit submit. This is a page that'll give us places where we can onboard the teams later, that, or uh, to give the teams more information. Later, we'll actually be looking at what the teams have actually deployed in their environment and, cr and creating a curated learning path for the team. So you're using EKS. We'll go ahead and pull up uh, a learning path for EKS so you can learn about Kubernetes and EKS. Uh, if you're using S3, we'll have uh, some tidbits about S3. But this also helps our learning curve for the teams that we can focus them on the technologies that they'll be using first. The middle button then allows you to download the uh, CloudFormation templates that we generate for the team on the fly that reference our service catalog. Now they can download it, check it into their GitHub, and then we also will set up their uh, deployment strategy so that if they need to make a change to their infrastructure, they make a change to the CloudFormation template, that'll get checked into GitHub, which will kick off a change set, which will actually make the change. So we treat our infrastructure as code. So in closing, what are the benefits for Service Catalog for GoDaddy? It did get us from a point of where we thought we were going to do six teams to about 3x that, mostly because it, allowed, it allows us at, at the AWS level, not at our level as, as, you know, we're just accounts to AWS, but it gives us a way to enforce where we need to and suggest everywhere else. It gives us uh, a way to do that governance, but only get involved when we absolutely have to. Um, and then also allows all the experience that the Cloud Excellence team my team has gathered over onboarding all these teams to will those into defaults for products for teams moving forward. So how do I keep my job in, in April that, uh, so that we, get, we can claim success on this? So one is that we built an environment where teams can experiment, fail fast and fail cheap. We've provided a builder or developer first methodology that allows teams to move quickly, but do it safely. And lastly, we've allowed the teams to hit those five pillars and deploy with the must-haves in those five pillars, but only bump up against the governance when they're coloring outside the lines. So thanks for listening. Um, if all this sounded interesting to you, GoDaddy is hiring, so careers.godaddy.com. Had to get that in there. Um, Thank you. Right. So if there are any questions, we'll happy to take them. If not, we'll give you a few minutes back. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so the... Uh, at GoDaddy, we already have what we call UX Core 2. It's a, we, we are a React-based UI company. So everything that we do is based in React. Um, we will take a React-based application, wrap it up into this web-based application. They'll go to that website. Ultimately, the application is just a single-page app that'll get downloaded. And then we'll call APIs in the background. One group will be, one of my teams will be responsible for the account and billing management. Another team to orchestrate, hey, I've chosen GoDaddy approved architecture number one. Here's the set of uh, templates that we're gonna, uh, uh, CloudFormation templates we're gonna pull from. And then uh, Gettin's team will then be responsible for executing the back end of that. And then uh, I have an application security team that will then set up the CICD pipeline so that we do static security analysis and dynamic security analysis and vulnerability testing on every build. Does that help? Sorry, I can't see bright lights. More questions? Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's the reason why we took the single-threaded approach was we didn't know what the teams needed at first, and quite honestly, like we knew we were going to use Kubernetes, but EKS only shipped in June. So our, our timing was fortuitous, like literally as we were onboarding the first team, the product had just shipped. Um, so as part of this, we had Getton's team meet with every team, go through the requirements that they had, the architectures that they had. We do this architectural review to make sure that the architecture was what we expected it to be. Then Getton's team would meet with them to go over the mechanics of what they actually need to create for them. Then would take those CloudFormation templates, will that into a uh, service catalog product for us, and then we would instance it out of the service catalog. So think of it as like, service catalog was empty, we onboarded the first team, everything they needed made it into the service catalog. We onboarded the second team, what's the delta of the things that they needed that the first team didn't, that thing made it in the service catalog. And over time, we end up with a very large portfolio with all the teams in it. Ultimately, we'll break that down into individual portfolios by architecture. And just to explain. I'm sorry, say that again? For each individual product? Well, uh, so the thing with CloudFormation, right, is like one of the things that we did was we took like an MVP approach with like meeting with each of the teams. So if you build out the CloudFormation product to try to encompass every configurable parameter that you can, it can take a long time. So building out the template itself takes a matter of just a day, maybe in some cases a couple hours. Most of the teams we start, we, by the point when we engage with them to the point that we're hands off and they're running on their own is about two days. Yes. So as, as we've onboarded now 14, 15 teams and 20 by the end of this year, uh, the general feeling is, is that we've started to hit, like now we engage with a new team, there's nothing new to add to the service catalog because the teams have started to, like they, they deploy software the same way. Pretty much all of them are falling into the, Kubernetes with an Aurora database, it's MySQL-based, that uh, has an ELB in front of it. They may or may not use S3, they may or may not use the Direct Connect, but we can start getting into these patterns. Once we have those patterns, then they'll literally just pick it in that dropdown I showed you with the different pictures. They'll choose that, that one, and that's the one that we'll deploy for them. If they come back and say, hey, I need X, Y, or Z more, or hey, mine isn't matched in there, We'll then one off each one of those teams. They'll meet with Getton's team. We'll add the things that they need to the service catalog. Then that'll be one more picture that everybody else has to choose from. Does that make sense? Cool. And then scaling it from the service catalog model, just to add to that, um, we took a stack set approach. So we have a master account that manages the service catalog definitions for teams, and then stack sets that will deploy it based off of which accounts get which catalog, which uh, portfolios. Can, can you tell some of them are here? <laughs> um, so I have uh, three high-level ICs that report directly to me, um, and then it's Getton's team and uh, two other support teams, uh, probably 30-ish people in total. Um, my responsibility, the responsibilities of my team are broader than that, but specifically talking about moving to AWS, that, that, that addresses that. You're talking about like the deploy model for the actual application tier? Well, for example, again, you're building these new features, these new services. Yeah. Is that straight up on the new feature laptop, or is that Most of the time, we've taken the approach that we're re-architecting and rebuilding before we deploy. So many of the teams have gone from, uh, you know, bare metal deployments with, you know, not using VMs to container-based deployments that we ultimately just move them to AWS on. Um, however, there are, there are some teams that, you know, will we'll move in smaller steps than that. Um, and given the size of GoDaddy, it would be naive to think that we're not gonna lift and shift anything, but we are trying to keep that to a minimum. Inside the service catalog as well, we release versions of the products. So depending on if a feature within a product is something that a team wants, they can either upgrade the product version or um, sunset and then rebuild a new one. Yep. 
So those aren't, those aren't log on. So all of our accounts are backed by, we use Okta to log in. So they use your GoDaddy account to log in. Those are what we call global accounts. So they aren't under any particular line of business. So they're not under like GoDaddy. So the logging account is where trout, yeah, so the logging account we use for all CloudTrail logs go there. So one of the things we get to do as we onboard the teams is we create their account. We then immediately turn on CloudTrail. We then direct CloudTrail to go to our global logging account, and then we throw the account away so that no one can ever log into it and ever turn it off. Does that make sense? So that's for our direct, that holds our actual direct connect. So we uh, ran, I think we have six direct connects now to uh, four different, three different regions within AWS. Um, those direct connects uh, have to have a home account that we then create virtual interfaces and grant them to the accounts that will then use them. Back there. No, it was your, sorry. Yeah, yep, sorry. So the other side of my team uh, <laughs> manages our OpenStack environment and a good portion of our hosting environments as well. So um, it's good because um, over time, that team that is uh, very well versed in OpenStack will then help us with some of the lower level migration stuff to AWS. Uh, so I ran hosting prior to that, and prior to that, I spent 15 years building video games. Um, and then five years before that, being a penetration tester for a security company. So um, <laughs> definitely something we got all thrown into. Um, the team, the way GoDaddy formed our cloud excellence team, we call it application services, uh, was a mixture of CIO organization teams, CTO organization teams, and hosting teams that kind of all got moved together so also through all of this was a mishmash of teams that got thrown together that we had to enumerate what services we were actually responsible for, kill off the services we were no longer using, reorganize ourselves, all that going on in the background as we were doing this. There's a question in the back there. Yes, sir. So I think from my perspective, not necessarily deep in the code type thing, but from uh, how do we orchestrate the company to change its culture, that's probably been the biggest challenge for me personally is finance at GoDaddy has always been the, you know, the final say in a lot of things and they have a lot of control over what switch you were buying and what hardware we were buying. And you know, as we move out to the public cloud, it's more, we want them more to be the check and balance, not necessarily the approver. Like you said you would spend $10,000 this month, you spent $9,000, you're good. Rather than, well, what did you spend at $9,000 on? That's that culture shift we're in the middle of right now. To add on a little bit to that, actually, um, so one thing to also help with the budgeting and finance piece of that is by default within service catalog, you can have tags. So we added tags to every single product that gets deployed inside of an account with the actual budget ID for that team. So we, as part of our landing zone, we uh, default the tags for each account as well. So then finance can correlate that back using that. So then just to build up on that, right? So we have seen enterprise customers essentially define a cost center or for a project or for a program or for a division. And then they can write their own custom resource Lambda function and build it back into a actual procurement engine if you have a Coupa or Ariba, whatever you have in there, and we can just take it down that workflow too. So there, the specific aspect of you know, doing a chargeback has been done. It's not as clean as you want it. We have taken the feedback, and behind the scenes, we're working on a few features, if you will. But it's been done. It takes a little bit of a tango dancing, but it can be done. I 
I can take that one. Um, so two approaches. One is any new products that we build out, our cloud excellence team, we have um, three gating uh, steps to have multiple reviews and all that. Um, we'll bring in experts from each of the different areas as well just to get their feedback on the product definition. And then we're also moving into a contribution model as well, as well where if a team needs a product that we haven't yet gotten to that we've added to the, the catalog, we'll ask them to go ahead and open up an initial PR with a product definition, and then we'll take a look at that, look at best practices, and make sure that uh, it conforms, and then we'll just have iterations from there. So two, two different approaches. Okay, awesome. I think we have about reached the end of the time here. Happy to take more questions outside. Uh, I want to be mindful of the next uh, team coming in. So thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.